The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. I've known Andy Jones Wilkins for about three years, and the entire three years that I've known Andy, he has been this wise sage, this older brother of the Beast Coast community. I don't want to call him the patriarch of the Beast Coast because, yeah, I would say that would probably fall to Laz or or maybe Steve Durbin. There's a, there's probably a lot of people that are much older than Andy. He's not the age to be the patriarch, but he's that cool older brother that is always there to give you advice, uh, help you out, see how you're doing, and just he embodies everything that is trail running. I love him. I consider myself blessed to to call him friend. And this is the first time that I can say Andy Jones Wilkins is on the Adventure Jogger. Hello, Andy. Hey, Ryan. Thank you for that uh, nice introduction. And I'm I'm happy to call you friend too. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've done some fun things together, and uh, I'm 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 really looking forward to this conversation. It's uh, it's long time coming. Andy, one thing that I saw, and you posted this on Facebook, and this was probably about oh, two or three weeks ago, and it was, you made a post, and I was like, what would you give for 26 minutes and 43 seconds or something like that? And it was in reference to the year that you took second at Western States, and you were just 27 minutes or less behind Scott Jurek. And it was reading that that I said, God, I've only known you, Andy, as, you know, someone who is very competitive, but I didn't know you during the ass kicker years during the time when you came in second. I mean, that's a that's an aid station screw up. That's a wrong turn. That's like you were so close to that cougar and looking back at your results i didn't know you in the ass kicker days i've only known you for the last couple of years but we'll get to that in just a minute but something like 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 clicked when i saw that like oh my god andy still is a badass but there was a time when you were a trail monster and i never i never got to see that side of you I, i didn't know you back then well it's it's uh it's less than the length of you know a typical sitcom uh, and, uh, and for some reason, I wouldn't say not a day in my life has gone by in the 15 years since then, but, but pretty close in terms of, of what, if anything, could I have done differently, uh, you know, to, uh, to give, make up those 27 minutes. Um, probably nothing. I imagine if I had gotten closer to Scott, he would have just run faster, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, but, but it is, it's the closest thing to, to being the, the vice president, right? One, one heartbeat away from the presidency. I, I was one, one heartbeat away from, from having my very own cougar. And, and in the years since, of course I thought, okay, well, I'm still going to have a lot of years left. I'll probably win one of these years. And, of course, you never, you, you never, you never know when your moment's going to come when you when you need to grab the ring and take it. So 
I fell short a little bit, but uh, but it's still I still look back on that day as probably the single most enjoyable day of running I've had in my life. Well, let's get we'll get to that in a minute. I want to talk about that Western States, but let's kind of start from the beginning. Andy, where did where was Andy Jones Wilkins born? Where where was the childhood of the AJW spent? I was born in Massachusetts. My parents, my parents had spent uh, three years in, in Uganda, East Africa. My father at a university and my mom with the Peace Corps. And they actually United States when my mom was eight months pregnant with me and in the summer of 1967. And so they, they went to my grandparents' house. My grandparents lived in Massachusetts for a long, long time. We're, we're an old Massachusetts family. And, and that's where I was born. Uh, and then within about a month, uh, we moved to, to New York City. We lived in New York City for uh, three years when my dad was getting his, uh, t- his master's degree in education at Columbia University. I come from a family of educators. Uh, and then uh, we moved around a little bit, but, but om- almost all in, in New York State. My dad was in the New York State Board of Education, so uh, I was a superintendent of school. So I went to elementary school and high school in uh, basically suburban New York City. Um, played up uh, didn't, didn't run at all played team sports uh, soccer basketball and lacrosse um, ended up going to Hamilton College in in central New York where my my dream of becoming a dashed and subsumed with my dream to become a successful fraternity boy uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had these hopes of impressing your parents and being this studious scholar and then right. and then it's pledge week and you're like wow fuck that that's done that's right that's right and so you know the, the story really begins with the fact that um that I was about 240 pounds when I graduated from college. Uh, Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I was a big, I was a big boy. I, I enjoyed uh, fried food and, and, uh, and, and frosty beverages and, and not didn't do a whole lot else. So I was a, I was a big boy when I graduated from college and, um, and I got my first teaching job uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And so I, I met my now wife, Shelly, uh, on my first couple of weeks on that job. She was a teacher at the school also, um, much more physically fit. She was a swim coach and a, a, a counselor at the school. And, um, you know, I, I fell in love with her and I was like, well, shit, I better I better get in shape, you know. <laughs> uh, and so it, it, the funny story there is that she was a. She was a swim coach and a water polo coach. And when I met her, she was preparing to go out to a water polo clinic in Colorado Springs. Yeah, we lived and and she said to me, no joke. She said, you know what I'm going to do, Andy? I'm going to I'm going to ride my bike out to it and then ride home. And I my mouth dropped and I was like, you're going to do what? And uh, yeah, and and I was like, well, have fun with that. I'm gonna be up on Cape Cod, you know, looking at the at the fish market and and drinking beer with my buddies, and you know, and say anything. Anyway, as young love will do, uh, by November I had bought myself a bicycle, and uh, by January I was planning on joining her for the trip, uh, which we ended up doing, and she got me really into bicycle touring. Uh, and that's where running starts because I needed some way to stay in shape. We, we went on a bicycle tour every summer for about four years. We toured on our bicycles. Um, 
and I needed some way to stay in shape during the winter. And I started running. Uh, and it was terrible at first, you know, stuff jiggling everywhere and, <laughs> you know, having to, having to walk up every hill and it's not like Philadelphia had tons of hills. Um, but, uh, but I, I caught the running bug at that, at that point. And, um, uh, like a lot of runners, I, I, I wanted to work my way up to a marathon and then I wanted to qualify for the Boston marathon. And, and, uh, I guess at that point, the, the rest is history. <laughs> That's incredible. I think we glanced over the fact that you rode a bike from Philadelphia to Colorado. You kind of passed over that like that's nothing. <laughs> well, so so there, the biking story is big. So that, that was in 1990. Yeah. In, in, in fact, we ended up, she ended up deciding not to go to the water polo clinic and just we rode all the way to the coast. Um, the next year we rode across the country in the in the opposite direction. Um, and, uh, the next year we rode our bikes from her parents' house in Oregon to Fairbanks, Alaska. And then in 1994, we both finished our master's degrees and we quit our jobs and we sold our cars and we put all our stuff in storage and we got a one-way ticket to Santiago, Chile. And we rode our bikes from Santiago, Chile back to the United States. Wow. That took us about nine months. And, uh, and we had, we, oh, while we were in Philadelphia, we, we saved, we were so, we were such a funny young couple. We saved a thousand dollars a month on our meager income. We saved a thousand dollars a month for 25 months. So we had $25,000 and we, when we quit our, quit our jobs yeah. and set out on this round the world bike trip and we just rode our bikes until we ran out of money. Uh, and then we used my parents' credit card to fly home. With, that was in, in February of 1996 and uh, started getting jobs. So, so bicycle touring was a big, big part of our early marriage. And now you have a son that's really into bicycle riding. Oh, we, we, we do. Our son, Logan, who's 20, is really, really into cycling. And, and he loves looking at our old pictures from our trips and, and stuff like that. It's really cool. Biking biking's definitely kind of a big part of our family. Okay, but you discover ultras at some point. What was the what made you figure out that there was this kind of subculture of running, these strange bearded fellows and, <laughs> and fun-loving uh, cousins to the road running world, trail and ultra runners? What got you into this sport? Well, there were there like like there were a lot in the '90s. There were these small little groups of typically grizzled old guys, you know, with with sh short shorts and and unmatched socks and really really worn out shoes uh, that ran in Philadelphia. My first ultra was in 1992. It was just a multiple loop. It was just a four times around an eight mile loop, you know, in the city. Uh, and there were little ultras like that, like out at Valley Forge, mostly on the roads. Mm -hmm. um, but but I was I only did a few of those because I was more focused on marathoning. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until so we returned from the world trip um, and we needed to find jobs. And we we were we we, we interviewed and we needed to be in the same school or yeah. at least a school in the same town. Right. We both needed to work. Yeah. And and we interviewed in. Jacksonville, Florida, uh, uh, Chicago, Illinois, and Phoenix, Arizona. And the best situation was Phoenix, Arizona. And neither of us had been there, but we moved there 
Uh, and they had, even in 1996, a really, really vibrant trail running community. Um, some ultras, the Crown King Scramble, the Man Against Horse 50, uh, they had a lot of sub ultra trail runs, uh, Mazatzal's 18 miler, for example. And it was just a crazy group of, of guys and gals uh, out there um, in the heat, in the desert, um, who just ran trails. And it was really there where I caught the bug um, and started doing 50Ks and, and 50 milers and, and realized that the longer the race was, the better I did. You know, I might be in the top 30 in a 50K and I might be in the top 15 in a 50 miler and, and you know, break the top 10 in a 100 miler. So being somewhat competitive, I just said, well, well, damn, I'm going to just do that. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, you're a mentor to so many people. Um, who were your mentors early on in your trail running world? Well, there were, two, there were, that's excellent. There were two guys in Phoenix, uh, Tom Gentle and Vince Devlin. Uh, I've lost touch with Tom, but Vince is probably now about 80 years old, was retired Marine Corps corporal um it was the first guy i ever saw put gummy bears in his hat uh <laughs> and then and then eat them uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> he put gummy bears in his hat to, to get him to soften up and then he would just you know like right on his hair literally on his hair um so <laughs> Uh, there were a couple other guys, Scott Mojalewski, uh, everyone called him Mojo. He was an underwear model. Uh, he's quite simply, you're, you're in the same room with him and you feel so, so in, you know, insufficient, <laughs> handsome, strapping guy, Ed Zarambo. A lot of these guys were like early hard rock runners, you know, and there was no lottery and, and stuff like that. And then, and then, then I really, you know, Phoenix was only about a six, seven hour drive from, from the LA area. And I, I really got into the Angeles Crest 100 as my first hundred miler. And there was a, there was a group of runners out there that really, really were my mentors in learning how to train, particularly Tom Nielsen from San Diego, uh, who is just a legend. Uh, one, one Angeles Crest a couple of times also got second at western states in fact he's the only guy who got he's the he's the second place finisher at western states who f was closer to jurek than i was i think he was like 18 minutes in 2003 or something but but those were the guys you know, the salty desert dogs from arizona and then tom nielsen and a couple of the other uh what they they called themselves the san diego bad rats uh, from uh, from Southern California, they they really taught me uh, a lot about when to walk, when to run, how to fuel, uh, you know, how to how to use a crew, how to use a pacer, all those kinds of things that that now you can figure out online. But back then, you just had to talk to people. Western states, you are called by many, Mister Western states. Ten Western state finishes. You've got that thousand mile buckle. We talked about the second place finish. Uh, you've got top 10 finishes as well. We'll get to the second place. I want to I dissect that race uh, in just a little bit, but what put that race on your radar? So, so I was living in Phoenix, and I, I, I distinctly remember the 1997 race, which was the race that Mike Morton won. And as you, of course, know, Mike mm -hmm. Morton was from Virginia. 
And up and and I, you know, even though I'd now lived in the West for a few years, I was still an East Coaster at heart. Yeah. And, and the and Norm Klein and the other uh, people around Western states uh, had said for years that first they'd said nobody nobody from outside California would ever be able to win Western states, and then they said nobody who's not on the West Coast would ever be able to win Western states. And Mike Morton comes in 1997 and obliterates the course record, runs a, a 1540. He's this mysterious guy who's like a, a Navy Special Forces dude, and and he just crushed it, you know, from Virginia. And so I was like, wow, th th this is amazing. So I started following the race in 98 and 99. Of course, 99 was when Jurek had his first his first win there. And, and then 2000. In 2000, I had a really good uh, Angeles crest. I got second. And, um, and back then, you could write a letter to Western States uh, organizers and basically kind of send them a resume mm -hmm. about being an accomplished runner and and maybe get in the race. And so I just, I didn't think it would happen, but I, I did with the two guys at my second place at Angeles Crest. It was a really good time. It was in really hot weather. You know, I wrote a letter and the race director wrote back and said, yeah, you will give you special consideration. You can run in, in 2001. And I thought I was just the greatest thing. You know, my <laughs> shit didn't smell, you know, <laughs> I was like, look at me, man, I'm going to Western States. I'm going to be, <laughs> so so i go i do i do the classic newbie western states thing and all through the spring of 2001 i trained way too hard i burned myself i think i ran my western states probably on the second weekend in may <laughs> by the time i got to the starting line i was toast you know just burnt overtrain there was no nobody talked about overtraining back then but man i was so I made it in the 2001 race. I made it to Forest Hill. Okay. I was probably in, you know, right around 10th place, 12th, 15th place, ended up cratering from there. You know, I, I still broke 24 hours. I think I got, I don't know, 30, 36th place or something like that, but it was a death march, absolute death march, you know, especially from the river in, I probably walked every step. And, and this is 2001. And, yeah. and, and I basically said at that point, well, this race is too big a deal. This it's too important. I'd never been anything like that. Right. Angeles crest is super low key. You know, you finish and there's like two guys at the finish line. They should <laughs> take your handy. You know, it was nothing like, so I, I was like, Oh man, I, 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 this is, I can't come back to Western States until I figure out how to run these things. And, uh, and, and, and as luck would have it, it was uh, about this time that my, my uh, second son, the bike racer, uh, Logan, was born. Uh, and my wife, Shelly, decided that she would prefer to be a stay-at-home mom for a little while. We now had two boys, you know, under four. And, and she, had, with a glint in her eye, said, yeah, and you know what, Andy? You should try to become a school principal because you're that dick face in the back of the room who's always second-guessing <laughs> the administration. It's time. It's, you, you, you're always saying, you're always saying you, you know, if you were the principal, you'd do it this way. So why don't you just suck it up and, and try to become one? <laughs> Now, of course, her of course her ulterior motive was that we needed more money, right? And, right. Uh, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, so I so I was like, all right, well, damn it, if you want me to be, I'll do this. And I mean, I I did what you do in, in this line of work. At this point, I'd been in the in the private school world for ten years. Yeah. So 
five years at two schools and I'd kind of worked my way. I was a, a department chair and a dean and I had, I'd had some administrative type experience. I'd been a very successful lacrosse coach. So I had, I kind of had the chops if I wanted to. And man, I got so lucky. I was, I was 34 years old, but there was this great old headmaster at a school in of all places, Oakland, California in the Bay area. Paul Chapman, who was who was willing to take a chance on a young, wet behind his years administrator, and he hired me to be the middle school principal. And uh, and within a week of getting the appointment, I got an email from Tony Rossman. Tony Rossman is still a board member of Western States uh, and uh, and a multi-time finisher. Has uh, was the was actually the lawyer who brokered the deal that allowed Western States to to uh, across the Granite Chief Wilderness, Tony Rossman emailed me and said, hey, it's so great to have an ultra runner as an administrator at Head Royce School. That's where my daughters go to school. <laughs> and, and I was like, sweet. So I, you know, so, so this is how the game is played. <laughs> Lottery schmottery, I've got to weigh in. <laughs> so anyway, I, I did run, I, I did not run Western States again until 2004 uh, when I did actually I did was actually selected in the lottery uh, had my had my name selected in the lottery for 2004 ran the race and got eighth place um, and subsequently then the the, the subsequent uh, seven years I, I got top 10 each year so I was able to just keep coming back so that that's really the story of how it all how it all started. And of course, living in the Bay Area, you 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 cannot help, especially in that time in the early 2000s. You know, John Medinger lived in Oakland, Errol the Rocket Jones, uh, all of these. Ann Trayson was still running, living in Kensington, just up from Berkeley. I mean, you would see a who's Kevin Sawchuck, another 10 time Western States finisher. You'd go out on the trails in the East Bay and it would just be a a who's who of Western States legends. And so I just kind of, kind of hopped on that train and, 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 and just loved it. All right. Let's talk about the year of the second place finish. Andy, yeah. was that, was it 2005? <laughs> it was 2005. Yeah. Okay. So Scott Jurek has now won his, it was it be fourth or fifth Western States in a row at this point. No, it, it worse. He had actually already won it six times. Okay, so six times. You're thinking, oh, come on. How many times can this guy win in a row? I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this. I've run Western States this a couple of times now. I've, I've, got, I've got the course down. I know, uh, you know, how to train for this thing. How did 2005's Western States go for you? Well, it, I got to say, like a lot of things like this, it really started at the award ceremony in 2004. I was standing, you know, they call all the top 10 up there. Mm -hmm. And I was standing kind of down at the end of the line uh, because I was eighth. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and, and you look over and you see all these incredible runners. And, and, you know, the guy who got second place in 2004 was Dave Mackey. I mean, a yeah. legendary, legendary runner in his own right. And, and he really gave Scott a run for his money that year. And and I remember talking to Dave a little bit because Dave used to come out and run the Bay area races all the time, me walk and skyline and uh, way too cool and stuff. So I'd gotten to know Dave a little bit and, and, and I just was like, man, you, you just crushed it. And you know, you, 
you gave Scott a run for his money. And, and just talking to Dave, he kind of started saying, well, you know, I could have done this differently, that differently, you know, he could tell he was, his head was churning a little bit about, you know, what, what, what maybe he could have done to, to, to win. So, so I, I, you know, went, went home and, and recovered and, and did all that. And, and really all through the fall was just trying to suck as much wisdom off of the Western States crowd that lived in the Bay area as I could. And I went up, I, you know, drove the three hours up to the course all the time. I trained on the course. I, I tried to figure out what my, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are. And I just had a perfect, perfect training cycle. Um, on the two, uh, three weeks before the race, they had a little low-key uh, race on Mount Diablo, uh, the Diablo 50K that went up up and down the mountain twice. And and it, normally it wouldn't make sense to do a, a, a you know a hard 50K three weeks before the race, but I was feeling good. I decided the day of to do it, and and I got the course record. And I was like, oh man, I'm in pretty good shape. I I, I might have a shot at doing well at this. Um, and then, and then the weather report started coming in and it was clear that it was going to not be a, not be a super hot day, uh, that it was, there was going to be a lot of snow in the high country, which didn't scare me. And it was not going to be a super hot day. And so that back then, what you, what, what you could count on happening on the days that were not very hot and it's kind of counter counterintuitive is the not very hot days. A lot of the front runners would go out too hard because it wasn't hot and they would burn up, they would, they would flame out. Whereas on hot years, they would be more conservative because they knew it was going to be hot. So anyway, a race started and I kind of got comfortable, I don't know, 15th, 20th place or something at mile. Yeah. The 50 K mark and didn't even really know what place I was in. By the time I got to mile 50, I knew I was doing, you know, pretty well, but I, I got to mile uh, 55 and uh, and i was in ninth place and joe kulak who's a guy uh known very well in the beast coast a former grand slam record holder uh philadelphia guy uh you know i'd run with him a lot in vermont and other races he was just leaving the aid station when i got in at mile 55 so i thought okay well and I, I wasn't really able to hang with him in, in previous races like like in vermont in 2000 and uh, three, he beat me by like an hour and a half. So yeah. he was, he, I, I viewed him as a notch above me. So the fact that he was just leaving the aid station when I was getting in, I was like, oh, wow, man, I, you know, I'm, I must be having a good day. Um, and, and I was, and, and some other names from the time, Tom Nielsen was behind me. Dean Carnassus was behind me. Uh, some of these guys that I'd normally always been behind, I was ahead of. So so I thought, okay, well, let's take this and roll with it. And this was the first year that Shelly, remember I told you earlier, Shelly was a very competitive athlete in, in and of herself. Yeah. She took a, she had a slip of paper. I'll never forget this. She stuck it in the, the pocket of my shorts and said, read this on the climb on the next climb. And I was like, okay. And I got to the next climb. So this is like mile 56. And I reach into my pocket and she has written out on a little slip of paper, each runner, who's been through and a little description of how they looked <laughs> and whether, and, and the time they went through like, uh, or like changed his shoes looked like crap. <laughs> uh, you know, ate, ate, ate a lot, drank a soda and got out really fast, ate a lot of food. You, you won't catch him. 
uh, looked like he had trashed quads, that sort of stuff. I was like, oh man, I love my wife. (laughs) So, so, so I looked at it and I thought, oh, well, you know, it looks like only three guys are going to beat me so I could get fourth. That was kind of my thinking because I, she, she, because the little cheat sheet said these five guys look like shit. I was in ninth. So I was like, all right, let's go for fourth. So I'm, I'm, I just start running along, start running along, uh, get to, uh, get to forest Hill and pick up my pacer. I'm still only in ninth place. And my pacer is John Pierch, uh, a guy from the Northwest, really strong runner, strong, like 50 K runner. And we start hammering the downhill to the river and just quickly, it seemed like every 10 minutes we were passing someone. And eventually I lost track of how many people we'd passed until we got literally down to the river level. And there's this place where you pop out of the single track onto a double track and there's a, a picnic table. And I know it really well, cause I've sat at that picnic table a bunch of times and, and, uh, and, and, you know, got, got fueled up and stuff. And Jorge Pacheco, who's still a legendary runner was lying on the, uh, lying on the bench, just like asleep practically. And, and a little while later, Francois Delabar, who was like the Euro phenomenon who had come to potentially unseat Jurek, was going down a downhill backwards because his quads were so trashed. And my pacer looked at me and he's like, I think we're in second place. And I was like, Pierce, you're full of shit. We're not in second place. <laughs> you, 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 you counted wrong, whatever. So we go the next, it's about 10 more minutes. We get to the river crossing and, and I go straight in. I'm, I'm like, we're, we're, you know, I'm feeling good. You had to weigh yourself back then. I weighed myself. I turned, I went right down to the river. Pierce is off to the side and I could tell he's talking to the guy with the clipboard. So I was like, all right, well, let Pierce do that. I go down. Pierre catches up to me. He's like, well, you know what? You are in second place. That's what the clipboard guy said. And he said, Jurek left here 24 minutes ago. And I just, I went into freaking hyperspeed. I don't know what (laughs) happened to me, but I was like, are you serious? There's nobody between me and Scott Jurek? Nobody? So we, so we begin the climb and I'm like, well, John, he could twist his ankle. He could, he he could get, he could, I know he's done it six times, but, but he could get lost. He could, he could get lost. At one point I said his, his pacer could challenge him to a cannonball contest at no hands bridge. I was like, we got to haul ass. (laughs) So, so, so of course, you know, I never, I never caught him. Um, but you know, I ran that last 22 miles with a, with a smile on my face. And, and, and the, the funny, the, the funniest moment in the race was I, I got you, I was, it was about mile 80, 84, or 85. And there's a, it, it's not, it's not funny for the circum. It's not funny for the reason, but it's funny for the circumstance. There's a, there's a memorial mm-hmm. out on the course for a woman who got uh, attacked and, and killed by a mountain lion. Uh, back in the early nineties during a training run. And, uh, and I was running along and, and, and I was saying to Pierce cause he'd never been on this part of the course. And I was telling him, Oh yeah, this section is this. And this section is that. And, and, uh, and, and I said, and this is the part where the lady who got eaten by the mountain lion, they have the memorial. And he was like, I feel like I've just been eaten by a mountain lion. 
<laughs> and I turn around and, and I'm running and he's walking and I realize I'm about to drop my pacer. Wow. And, and if there's, and I, I like John Pierce and he's a great guy. And, but I mean, if there's anything that pumps up a runner's adrenaline, like dropping a pacer, I don't know what it is. So I was like, <laughs> all right, man, well, good luck with that mountain lion. I'm out of here. You know, and I was starting this at that point, starting this, starting this game and, and they were getting the aid stations were giving me the time. I knew I wasn't going to catch Jurek, but at this point I was like, well, maybe I can see how far I can go without having to turn my headlamp on, yeah. you know, and all that, that kind of stuff. And so, so I got, you know, I got in at one point I got to no hands bridge. I looked at my watch. I flirted with, could I break 17 hours? I would have had to run. I would have had to run like 11 minute pace for the last three miles. I didn't do that. So I ended up doing 1707 second place and, uh, and listen to me talking about it. I mean, I, you, you can tell it was a pretty good day. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I mean, just the the whole idea of you, there's nobody between you and Scott Jurek. I mean, just, just having that thought in your head like, oh, my God. And then making those rationalizations like, well, he could trip. Uh, I know he's won it six times, but maybe he, maybe he gets lost this time. Stranger things have happened. No, I, I, I literally, I, I literally had that visual. I said, "So the people at this aid station have seen two people so far, and one of them's freaking me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Uh, God, I, I I love that, Andy. Now I think you know people. Th- when they think of Scott Jurek, they think of Scott Jurek now, you know, like he's the father, he's the, you know, the elder statesman of the sport, but really back when you were racing him and back when he had that streak at Western States, he was kind of the proto Jim Walmsley. He was loud. He was a little cocky. I mean, there, there's so many parallels between those two runners. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were certainly, I mean, he, he had, he had some swagger that's very similar to very similar to Jim. I I think it was probably good that there was no social media back then. I mean, for a lot of our sakes, Um, I know, I mean, I mean, one thing that stuck in a lot of people's craw um, is he had this, as he started getting the streak going, he got to the finish line and did a barrel roll across the finish line for the amount of times he finished it. He won it. <laughs> right. So like the year he beat me, he beat me, he rolled across the line seven times, you know? So, so there, yeah, there was definitely some swagger to him, but you know what, here's what I, I have a lot of respect for what he did. Cause each successive year, more and more people were going after him. Yeah. More and more people were gunning for him. I mean, the guys who would come into the race and basically just get on his he- get on his heels and and run stride for stride for him as long as they could. Um, you know, were that's what I respected so much about what Mackey did cuz Mackey was ahead of him by like 10 minutes. Yeah. Mackey tried, you know, tried to run off the front a little bit and and Scott reeled him in. But, you know, good for Mackey for trying, but there were all these guys who would just come in and and, you know, Scott knocked him down each and every time, knocked him down. But he was known for his hooting and hollering and things like that. I mean, he was you, you couldn't you couldn't be successful at Western States without having a little a little swagger, a little a little cockiness and and frankly, uh, some head games. I mean, I know I know for a lot of my 10, my other top 10 finishes when I wasn't in the running to win, but, you know, got sixth place yeah. or got fourth place. 
a lot of it was the head games of getting in people's heads and letting them know how fit you were and making them worry about you coming from behind. I mean, that's a, that's a big, big difference in that race other than, than most others, at least back then. Now you see it at UTMB and other highly competitive races where there's a lot of tactics, but man, the tactical battle and the mental battle at Western State, you would see guys who are incredibly successful in other races would just come to Western States and crumble under that pressure. Were there a lot of back and forth between like playful back and forth between, you know, you and Scott Jurek and uh, Carl Meltzer and, and all the guys of, of that generation? Did you guys have kind of like a playful trash talk, but respect for each other? You know, you know, Scott, Scott was a little bit, I think, um, but uh, he was more aloof from that. Um, but uh, but everybody else, you know, back then, Ryan, it was all about the blogs. And so, you know, every, every runner had a blog, there was no Facebook and all that. So, you know, we, the comment sections of blogs were just ripe with, with smack talk. (laughs) I mean, I mean, to the Joe Kulak and I, well, we still smack talk. I mean, cause I only, I only, he was third, by the way, he was third place in 2005, nine minutes. Well, he'll correct me eight minutes and 59 (laughs) seconds behind me. Uh, but, but, but he'll point, he'll, he'll point, Kulak will point out, by the way, Kulak would be a good guy to have on the podcast sometime just to uh, point there. But Kulak, um, would, would point out that he ran that race with no pacer, uh, no crew, all drop bags, uh, and only finished eight minutes and 59 seconds behind me. So, uh, you know, but yes, the smack talk, I mean, and, and, and to, to, to some extent, the smack talk still continues, you know, Craig Thornley, the race director of Western States, he did not a lot of people know this, but he also had two top 10 finishes in the mid to 2000s yeah. in, in 2004 and 2005. And, and he hatched this idea, which of course now uh, uh, appears ludicrous of a 10 year bet. He made a bet with me in 2004 that we would uh, keep track of our cumulative time for 10 times running the Western States 100. And whoever wins would buy the, would, whoever loses would buy the other person and their entire family an all expense paid trip to the Grand Canyon. It's called the 10 year bet. Yeah. You can read all, you can read all about it on, on either of our blogs. Cause that was the kind of smack talk that was going on back then. <laughs> well, Craig still has one more, uh, Western states to run to get his 10th. Uh, it, he has to run that in one hour and 42 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting all expenses paid trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, the problem is I think he's going to wait to run it until I'm like too old to want to go to the grand Canyon. <laughs> but yes, the, 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 smack, the, the smack talk back then was, was really great. And, 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 and even at the races, you know, at the, at the pre-race briefings that, you know, it was, it was just really fun. It was really a, I look back on it with, with so much, so much uh, pleasure. It was a great time. Was there a dislike uh, amongst you guys that would kind of form a friendship later on as you got to know each other? Was there like, Oh God, I can't stand that jerk. Here he is. And then all of a sudden you spend some time together and the relationship changes or do you guys were always kind of, we respect and like each other. We just compete with each other. 
I think there was an expectation that you were that you weren't aloof, that you were social, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that you hung out after the race, that you I mean, I distinctly remember being at an ultra in the late 90s with Ian Torrance and Ben Hyen and Scott Jurek and Tom Nielsen. And we're all like scrubbing our legs and sharing our poison oak medicine and rubbing our poison oak off you know, our legs around this hose at the end of the race. Like that was the kind of thing you did. It was just expected that you would hang out. You would cheer for the other runners. You would, you would be part of the community. And so if there were any runners that got that, that were sort of scorned by the community, uh, at least of the guys in the front end, it would be those that, that weren't that way. But typically, typically they, if they came, if they came into the sport and they weren't that way, they would either adapt mm-hmm. or leave the sport, right? Like Carl, Carl Meltzer has always been a, an incredibly social guy. I mean, when he's running his races, he's got his headphones on, he's in his world and whatever, but before the race, after the race, hanging out, you know, it's just, it's, you're just two regular guys hanging out around a campfire or whatever. So that's uh that's that's really where the that part of the culture was born and it was man some of those guys are still some of my best friends in the world do you see that now when you see the runners of today do you see that camaraderie still and that waiting around the finish line or has it be gotten has it gotten more competitive and where people kind of are bigger stars now because of social media can kind of go to some people's head has the environment changed a bit, especially around Western states? Well, not, well, not really. I mean, it, it depends. I think it depends, but uh, in, in my, you know, I haven't run Western states since 2014, but I've been around the race. And, and when I hang out and I, I see the, I see the finishers, these young guys, they, they have, and I don't know if they're putting on a show for me or whatever, but they have a lot of respect for the event, for the history for the culture. Same with the hard rock people. Uh, you know, Killian, Killian hangs out as long as he can and cheers everybody on and knows people's names that you wouldn't think he would. Jim does the same thing, goes to races and volunteers. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, and, and where you really see a, a big change in the last 20 years is on the women's side. I mean, the women really have a sisterhood that uh that that reminds me a lot of the guys i was just talking about when i think of 2019's western states you know courtney dewalter was the odds-on favorite to win and and she had was going for the course record and was really on track for it you know had an injury ended up having to drop claire gallagher chases her down Brittany Peterson is right behind her. Casey Lichtai is right behind her. And you, you would have thought, I mean, it was a hug fest at the end. I mean, they were obviously they were competing really, really hard. I mean, Brittany and Claire were neck and neck at mile 94, believe it or not. But uh, I really see that sisterhood in the, in the women's field, especially as the women's fields have become so much more, competitive or they've always been competitive, but like deeply competitive, right? It's, it's a lot harder to predict the top 10 in a major race now than it was 10 years ago. So I I still see that. I mean, I I think, I think the people who know are the people who are, who've been around the sport and are going to stay around the sport. 
Uh, Casey is a great example. Casey Lichtai, just very, very humble and respectful of all the customs and traditions of the sport and and uh, pays homage to those. And I think old timers like me really respect that. Who's the future star of, of Western States? I know Walmsley has said he's he's kind of done running it for, for at least a couple of years. Who then, when we finally do run Western States again, which fingers crossed, next year we'll, we'll see everybody in Squaw and we'll have a running of the Western States. Who are you watching? Who are the future stars of that race? Well, I mean, you've got to uh, you've got to have give Jared Hazen a, a nod because he was so close to Jim last year. You know, he's, he's still incredibly young, but, you know, he ran the races an 18, 19 year old and now is a mid 20 year old. So I think he's got I think he's got a cougar in his future uh, even, even if Jim's running perhaps, but, uh, Jared, you know, I, I wouldn't call him a rising star. He's done a lot in the sport yeah. already. You know, I, I think, uh, I don't look past Kyle Piteri. He, he really, uh, he's had several top tens, but he, he loves the race. He cares about it. He focuses almost exclusively on it when it's going to be run. Uh, he's, he's smart. Um, and he's still young enough to, to do that of, of guys who haven't done it yet or haven't even done a hundred yet. You know, there's this, I've, I've, I called him out on, on I run far a couple uh, maybe a year and a half ago as a rookie of the year is Jackson Brill, super fast guy. He's done kind of all short distances, a uh, Cody Lind, uh, who's still only done the short distances has Western States pedigree. His uh, grandfather, Bob Lind is the original doctor uh, for the race and fired off the shotgun to start the race. And Cody's only 25 or 26 and kind of grew up on the course. Um, on the women's side, I, I mentioned Brittany Peterson. She got second. I, I think she has a cougar in her future. Uh, and then uh, a bunch of kind of the younger women coming out of the mountains, uh, you know, that are, I think gonna gonna run well there. So I I think the future is bright when Western States comes back. Uh, I think uh, there people love the race. People love the event. Craig's done an incredible job. Uh, you know, kind of changing the race for the good. Uh, even facing these incredible challenges of so many people who want to be in it. One thing I've always admired about you, Andy, too, is is you don't you don't quit. You've had you know massive hip surgeries where most people would say like, okay, I'm out of the game. They say the average ultra career lasts like three to five years and people are like, okay, I've got other things to do. How have you not burned out and how do you still find joy in the sport after all these years? Well, the first thing is you have to come to grips with being a lot slower. Uh, I, I, um, it's, it's interesting. I was up at uh, my parents' house in Massachusetts. I went to visit him. We, we, we stayed appropriately social distant, but I've, I've gone to visit my parents, you know, once a year up on Cape Cod for the last, you know, whatever, 20 something years. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the last, ever since there was Strava, right. I've gone for a run. I have my favorite loop up there. And, and, uh, you know, I ran the loop every day I was up there this year and, and my times were, you know, seven, a 10 K loop were like seven to 10 minutes slower than I was doing them, you know, six years ago. Yeah. And I, I didn't even want to look at, it. I was like, screw you Strava, <laughs> you know, but, but, but so, so the, so the first thing, to, the first thing to do is come to grips with being slower and, and, and embrace that. Um, 
you know, the other, the other thing is, is just, I, I love, I, I just love what I do. I, I love it. It, it's what it's, it's not only what I do, it's who I am. I am an ultra runner. Um, and until, until I can't make the cutoffs, um, I'll, I'll keep doing ultra runs. I mean, I'm going to run an ultra in a couple of weeks out in where I used to live in Idaho. Um, you know, I hope to make the cutoffs. I, 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 am pretty sure I'll make the cutoffs, but you know, I, I, 10 years ago, I would have, wouldn't have ever said, Oh my God, I hope to make the cutoffs. You know, 10 years ago, I might've said, I, I hope to finish before dark right now, you know, I'm now I've, now I've got the headlamp in the, you know, in my, in my bag from the starting line. So, um, but, but, but it's, but I, you know, I, I, I think burning out is so burning out is tricky because I think, I think you can burn out three ways. You can burn out physically as we've seen happen to mm -hmm. people where literally their body, whether it's a surgically repaired body like mine or a, uh, a body that just gives out on them uh, in their endocrine system or whatever that can be brutal. So you can physically burn out. You can mentally burn out. Your your head might not be in the game. You might not have that drive, that desire. You might get older, and you know the natural bodily chemistry things that happen when you get older uh, impact your running. Or, and this is worst of all, you can emotionally burn out. The positive, healthy vibe, good loving world that you embraced so much as a young person is no longer as emotionally engaging and you walk away from the sport that happens one, one or all three of those things happen to a lot of people. For me, I've, I've just, you know, and at any given time in the last eight years, one or all of those have sort of battled my, for my attention Two hip surgeries have impacted me physically, you know, uh, lack of motivation, lack of success, lack of being fast has uh, impacted me mentally. Uh, emotionally, I've been really impacted by the fact that some runs are just bad. Mm -hmm. Some runs you just turn around after a mile and walk home. I never used to do that ever, but you know, you gotta be, you gotta man, sometimes you gotta man up and say, you know what, that's what today gave me. And that's what I'm going to go with. And I think those are the kinds of things that then make it a little bit easier to get up the next day, kind of the old tomorrow is another day thing. And you remind yourself, you know, what you, what I said 20 years ago, which is I still want to be able to run when I'm an old man. And, uh, and here I am an old man and I'm still running. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I think we, we think that the sport is almost a marriage that, <laughs> if we decide we're not in love with this sport anymore, that that's it, right? So the marriage is over. I'm done. I'm throwing away all my medals. This is, and it's really not that. This is not a all in all the time game and you can come back to it. You can, you can have that time when you're just like, I, I just don't have the time for this and my heart's not in it. And then all of a sudden something brings you back in. It's, it's, not, this, it's not this in or out sport, yeah, I think it does. You're, that's an excellent point, Ryan. It, it, you know, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray in it. And, you know, and it may be, um, I'm not going to run 100 miles, 100 milers anymore. Yeah. Or I may not, maybe I'm not going to run any race anymore. Right. I'm going to keep running. 
maybe I'll volunteer at races. Maybe I'll become a race director, but I'm not going to, you know, whatever it is. I think the key is, is just being open to that, being open to, you know, the, my two surgeries are great examples. My 2015 surgery, the recovery happened just like the textbook says it's going to. And after six months, I was able to run again with minimal pain. I had to manage the pain. I had to make sure my, my efforts were controlled and so forth. But that's like the way the doctor said it was going to yeah. happen. And it happened that way. My 2018 surgery, it didn't go by the textbook. Uh, and so by the time I was you know, 14 months removed from the surgery, I was still two out of three days not able to run. And I was still, you know, bummed out about that. And I was ready to quit running and become a golfer and, you know, all those kinds of things. And, and then I just kind of soldiered through and one day I had a good run and it turned into two good runs and it turned into three good runs. And I stopped and I said, okay, Andy, careful. What made those runs good, you know, and, and then kind of built up, built up from there. And so it, it just, it turned out that that surgery took three times as long to recover from as the other one. It could be, could be very well the same as, Something mentally takes three times as long to recover from something emotional. So rather than just getting the divorce and throwing the ring in the river and getting rid of all the medals and, you know, selling all your shoes is to just kind of put it away, put it on a shelf, put it in a box somewhere, compartmentalize, concentrate on other things. And then, I don't know, pick a day, say, you know, hey, on August 1st, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go to my old favorite trail and and just see if the magic is still there. That kind of thing. Because, you know, when when we're when we're loving the sport, we're loving it a hundred percent, right? So it's under it's understandable. It's understandable that when we're hating it, we're hating it a hundred percent. And since it's really, really hard most of the time, right? It sucks a lot, especially if you're digging deep. It's kind of easy to just walk away from it. Um, and, and yet sometimes I think there are some regrets from those people who've done that. Um, I noticed, and I, I immediately thought of you when I saw that hard rock was canceled for, for 2020 because of the Rona. And I know that that has been, that has been on your radar for, you've had to move it back. You're supposed to do it last year. Last year didn't happen. And I know you were training so hard for it. And this was your thing. Hard Rock, how did how did it hit you when you when you saw that news? I, I knew how important this was to you. How did you deal with with having this massive goal that has been a three year goal be moved back yet another year? Well, it's 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 been a two part grieving process. Um, the, the the first the first part was I I resolved to live with the belief that it was it was not going to be canceled until they told me it was going to be canceled yeah and and the fact that it's been canceled two years in a row they're going to do what or it was canceled last year they're going to do everything in their power to make sure it's not canceled they're going to do special whatever special stuff they have to do because of the uh, virus so i i was training i mean i i talked to carl Meltzer about this several times and I said, I'm training like it's going to happen. And he was like, absolutely. AJW, train like it's going to happen. Train like it's going to happen. I mean, I was doing 30 milers. 
I was finding every little bit of hills I could find out here where I live. I was practicing with my poles. I was planning to go out to Silverton a month ahead of time. I mean, I was, I, I, maybe I was living in a dream world, but I was, that was what I was doing. And, um, and so the, so the day it was canceled, I actually was, uh, was doing a 50, I was scheduled to do a 50 K training run. And I was out at local state park and I got back to my car at mile 17. So got back to the car mile 17 was, was, you know, restocking, refilling my fuel and food and stuff. And, and, and I, I didn't, I didn't have my phone with me, but my phone was in my car. Yeah. And so I heard it beep and I went and checked it. And the beep was the notification that the race had been canceled. And I looked at it and I stared at it for a good, like two minutes. And I said, screw this. And I took my shoes off and I got in the car and I drove home. It was like, I'm and, and drove drove home just de- completely defeated. That was part one. Yeah. Part two, part two is the grieving I'm still living with, which is the decision that they made and it's their race. They can do what they want, but the decision to not roll over my entry or any of the other entries from the else lottery or the veterans lottery, you know, we basically got kicked out of the race. And if we want to run it in 2021, we have to go back in the lottery like everybody else. And that, so, so that to me, and I'm, that to me felt like not only did they cancel Christmas, but they said Christmas might not happen next year either. Wow. And, and that was for me who spent, you know, two years kind of waking up every morning thinking about how I can make myself a better runner to be ready for hard rock whenever it happens to have it taken away was, was really hard and, and still is hard to be honest. What was the rationale behind that? Cause you would think like the young guys, they have time. There's people that are trying to get into this. You'll have 10 more years of running, but you know, as you've got these veterans that may not be able to make it work again, this could be, I know for you, this was probably going to be your swan song at hard rock. This is going to go out in style. You're going to just do it one more time. Did they explain the rationale behind what they did with the veterans? Well, well, again, remember there's, there's two, there's two groups. There's to be clear. There's two groups. There's the veterans. Yeah. I'm not one of those. Okay. Right. And, and they've done it five times and then there's the everyone else. The, yeah. They've done it one to four times. And, and so the, the odds for the veterans are better than the odds for everyone else. And both of those groups are way better than the odds for the people who've never done it. Before. Right. Right. So they gave the people who've never done it before they rolled them over okay. because that, and I, I completely understand that. Um, you know, yes, my plan was to just for the hard rock to be my last hundred miler. I felt like I, you know, I was running on borrowed time with these hips. Uh, if there's one way to go out, it would be with that race. It would be my third one, you know, third times a charm, whatever that was, that, that was, that was my own little personal deal. You know, the, the rationale was, was a, was a understandable one that, you know, at, everybody has been waiting yeah the people who are in the race and the people who are not in the race and so even though the people who are in the race 
have been in the race for two years, it doesn't mean that the waiting has been any harder, has been any easier for those people who aren't in the race. That yeah. was the rationale. And so I accepted that. I, I, in fact, I had a very civil conversation with David Koblenz, the Hard Rock uh, board board chairman of the board and it should be it should be noted too that this is this is a board decision not yeah. a race director decision uh and and i had a civil conversation with david i understood his point of view i asked him to reconsider based on you know the fact the, the fact that we've been you know counting on this for two years i don't think they're going to reconsider but the part of it that made it hard was that it you know it just felt like you know all of this all of this hope all of this stuff that we care about so much in ultra running, you know, having patience and having hope and good was just kind of was dashed in a moment. Um, so of course the people whose names get drawn this year, they're going to be the lucky ones. They're going to just like every year. And, you know, I'll, I'll keep putting into the lottery, you know, what I'm a little bit worried. Here's one little thing I'm worried about that. I'm, I don't know if everybody's thought about, but if you, if you think about the people who, are in my cohort, the people who were in the race for the last two years were thinking they were going to run hard rock this year yeah. and now are not able to run hard rock. Those people who don't get pulled in the lottery haven't run a qualifier, right? They haven't run a race this year because they weren't thinking they had to, they right. thought they were going to run hard rock. So I hope my only hope is that for those of us who we're in this group that don't get in through the lottery that we get a chance to get some sort of concession with our qualifiers for 2022. That would make sense. Has it maybe gone in your head now that hard rock may be harder to get into? Have you had the thought of maybe saying goodbye to hundred milers in the race that kind of gave you the love for them? I mean, is this <laughs> Andy Jones Wilkins saying goodbye to hundreds at, at Western States is a beautiful thing. I, I, I was on a run this morning. I, <laughs> I'm, it's so funny. You said that, you know, I'm signed up for, for this, uh, Beaverhead hundred K, which is going to happen with lots of good protocols for the COVID it's going to happen on, on July 11th. And it's a, it's a Western States qualifier. Yeah. And so I was like, well, well, cool. I'll get a qualifier, you know, it's, and, and it'll be a Western States qualifier for 2022. Right. Yeah, because yeah. it's, uh, 2021's full already. I was like, well, I mean, I could start putting into the lottery, you know, one, <laughs> one ticket at a time. Right. right. Just, just keep, just like, you know, I, I wouldn't ask for, I would not ask for any favors. I would definitely not ask for any favors, but then if eventually my name was pulled, I don't know, in, in 2027, 2027, yeah. come on, 2030, 2030, <laughs> 2030. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, Hey, with any luck, I could have my grandchildren. <laughs> Maybe your great grandkids with the way the sport's going. Yeah, no, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't been lost on me that, that you know, I could at this point, it, you know, I could just say goodbye to hundreds and then put in the lottery for Western States, whatever, who knows, maybe Craig and I would run it the same year. And, and then we could just, after the race, go straight off to the grand game. <laughs> <laughs> we are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search the adventure jogger on Patreon or go to the adventure Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching the adventure jogger. 
and subscribe to the Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. 